tell you what you're listening to welcome to father simon says on relevant radio with father richard simon i'm here to answer your questions have a question give us a call 1-888-914-9149 that's any question you may have about the lord the faith and the church that's 1-888-914-9149 this is in fact a radio show called father simon says on relevant radio Welcome. This is a, a wonderful feast, the feast of the conversion of St. Paul. It's, you know, sometimes things happen that change the world, and today we remember one of them. So before we get into it, let's, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Acts, the 22nd chapter, the third verse, and the 16th, uh, third to the 16th, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. Paul addressed. Now, what's going on here? Paul has gone to the temple to fulfill a vow. And he has um, brought people into the temple. Uh, and there's this riot starting because they're saying that Paul um, has brought people into the temple he shouldn't bring in. And he's trying to ruin the faith of our ancestors and all that sort of thing. Let me go back to the last chapter and... Um, and um, where did I put it? Okay. All right. When seven days were nearly complete, oh, well, uh, he, he, there were some people who uh, um, were fulfilling a vow. This is verse 26 of the preceding chapter. Paul took the men. On the next day, after purifying himself together with them, he entered the temple to give notice of the day when their purification would be completed and the offering made for each of them. So he's observing Mosaic law by the the traditional interpretation. So when seven days were completed, the Jews from the province of Asia noticed him in the temple, and they shouted, fellow Israelites, this is the man who's teaching everyone against the people and the law. He's even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the sacred place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city and supposed Paul had brought him into the temple. Well, Paul didn't do that. You know, if you were uncircumcised and not in the covenant, you couldn't go into the inner uh, part of the temple. So... When they were trying to kill him, a report reached the cohort commander. A cohort was a, uh, you know, a, a bunch of Roman um, soldiers. I forget how big a cohort was. Well, uh, um, Paul was about to be taken to the compound, and he said, uh, "May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? So you're not the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago." He says, "I'm a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia." 
a city of no uh, a city of uh, a citizen of no mean city in other words no no dumpy city i request you to permit me to speak to the people so uh, paul is speaking greek now this is interesting because this sets the stage for the reading that um paul is uh, essentially under arrest the the okay i have to describe the temple a little remember gold herod the great who expanded the temple platform uh to the size of about 10 football fields and the temple originally had been on a perfectly square um uh flattened part of the the mount mount moriah uh overlooking uh the old city of david and anybody could go into that wider area but only a jew who was in the covenant, that meant circumcised for men, only a Jew in the covenant could enter into what had been the old sacred square precinct. And this was marked by a little wall, and on the wall were signs in Hebrew, or well, Aramaic, uh, Latin and Greek, saying, anybody who's not a Jew passed here, we, we, can't, we can't vouch for your safety. Essentially, you'll be torn limb from limb. So, Paul was being taken to the fortress of probably Antonia, which, which adjoined the, it abutted right against the north wall of this larger platform. So they weren't in the sacred precinct, but they were just north of it. And so there's a stairway. You know, the, the Roman soldiers could just descend into the temple whenever there was a riot, uh, which was occasionally. So uh, it was, it was um, uh, an access that the Romans had at the temple. And so Paul turns around and he says, let me, let me talk to them. Of course I speak Greek. And um, he explains who he is, that he was a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. And he tells his conversion story about how he was drawing near to Damascus after he'd been deputed to arrest Christians there. And he has a vision and uh, he hears a voice that says, I'm Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Uh, my companions saw the light, but did not hear the voice of the one who spoke to me. Now, there's a problem there, and I'm going to talk about that in the Word of the Day, because the next possible reading, which comes, this is from Acts 22, the reading from Acts 9 seems to contradict it totally. It doesn't. But he turns around and speaks to them and uh, uh, says, well, I, I had a vision, and, and I was blinded. And there was a fellow named Ananias. This is a different Ananias than Ananias the high priest. This is Ananias of Damascus. He was a devout observer of the law, and he was a believer in Jesus. And um, he had been delegated by the Lord to heal Saul and to baptize him. Um, now, the next reading says essentially the same thing, but a little differently. Let's go back to the very beginning. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. So Paul was born in Tarsus. He was a Greek by the, that culture. Paul's family, there's a, a possibility. I don't know if this is um, tradition. I don't think it is. But it's sort of a threading together of historical possibilities. Paul's family may have been captured and enslaved during the wars with Pompey the Great when Pompey invaded the Holy Land. And uh, um, they were given their freedom, and they were given Roman citizenship, 
and they would have been prosperous. They would have been in the service of of the Roman general to whom they had been sold, been given as slaves or sold, and uh, uh, ensuingly they had received their freedom. So Paul was a Roman citizen in a time when Roman citizenship was a rare thing. It wasn't given away to everyone. It was very hard to become a Roman citizen. But if you were a slave or freed, you were in what was called a client-patron relationship with your the person who freed you. You took uh, his name as part of your name and so on. So Paul was a Roman citizen. He was also born in a Greek city. But at a certain point, he was sent back to the Holy Land. Um, uh, I remember I actually had some cousins who were being raised in a, a, another country and their parents sent them back to America because they were becoming too um, enculturated into that culture, which was very different from our own. Uh, that sort of that sort of thing. Now, uh, um, Paul, uh, uh, therefore, was Greek and he was Roman. And of course, he was Jew. And now he's a Christian. Do you know what they call our civilization? Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman civilization. It's a great culture. I am not at all Greek or Roman, and I'm not Jewish. I'm a Christian. But my culture is Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian. The ethics uh, uh, of the Jews, the sense of law of the Romans, the sense of, of inquiry of the Greeks, and the, uh, the moral code of Christianity are the very fabric of our society. Paul is the first person in human history who could, of whom it could properly be said he was Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian. Paul is the inventor of our society, and I think it's a pretty good culture, frankly. Uh, the idea that, that even kings are subject to laws, that's Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian, that kings are not divine, that governments are not divine, that, that um, governments are the, at the service of the people, that's Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian. The idea that, that faith and science are not enemies, but handmaids of the same truth, uh, that's Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian. Um, the idea that there is a sovereign God who loves humanity and has spoken to humanity, that's Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian. It's a good culture. I like it a lot. And it has it is a flexible enough culture so that it can embrace the whole world. Uh, not because not by imperialism, that has not worked well, but because it is a reasonable and attractive culture. You know, the Filipinos are very Asian. I have lived with Filipinos for many years, and I even have Filipino in-laws. But they're Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian. Uh, the the um, the Latin culture, the Spanish culture, uh, that is so prevalent in the country today, it's very clearly Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian, and so on. Today is the day that we celebrate God intervening in the history of the world in one of the most dramatic ways he had ever done. And you know what? Nobody noticed it at the time. Think of that. You know, nobody, some people say, oh, this is this crazy Paul. You know, he's just a crazy Pharisee. He's a disciple of Gamaliel and, you know, what a liberal Gamaliel is and all that. Well, lo and behold, the world changed completely on the day that we are celebrating. And, um, you know, people look at history and they look at the situation of the world and the church. History turns on a dime. 
you think, well, no, it's all over. Nothing's going to work. It's We're doomed. Maybe we are. I bet we're not. Because history turns on a dime, and God is the one who turns it. This world and the church in which we live, these belong to God. And when I think that it all depends on my... What's the word I'm looking for? On my... having my own way politically and theologically and all that sort of thing. No, God's way. How often do I tell you God has this problem? He thinks he's God. Now, this is very interesting. Let's look at this, the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel uh, was a noted Pharisee teacher. Pharisees were a small group of people. They were, oh, there were certainly not more than 10,000 of them, maybe closer to 5,000 of them. They were not priests. They were not clergy. Uh, the Sadducees were, were the priestly tribe. Uh, and the priesthood was heredity. You couldn't be hereditary. You couldn't join the priesthood uh, in ancient Israel. You were born into it. You were not ordained into it. You would be initiated into your ministry if you ministered as a priest, but you weren't ordained a priest. All that you had to do to be a priest was be the son of a priest. And that word is really more properly sacrificer. Uh, um, we'll use the word sacrificing priest. Um, so uh, Paul wasn't one of those. Uh, he was in the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, and uh, the Pharisees, they, Gamaliel had had maybe 500 students, I think more. He was Phariseeism at the time. And Gamaliel was, uh, well, I suppose the way to put it is he was the liberal wing of Phariseeism. He, he was, uh, um, he's famous for having said, uh, the uh, when they brought in James and uh, uh, or Peter and John rather to the Sanhedrin, um, and they put them, he puts them out, and he was I think he was president of the Sanhedrin at the time, uh, the Jewish Supreme Court, and he says, listen, if this is from God, nothing we can do can stop it. If it's not from God, it'll go away of its own. There was a tolerance about Gamaliel, and it is said it's very interesting it's said that there was a student of gamaliel's now i do not remember where this is i don't think it's in talmud i I can't footnote it um if there's somebody who knows jewish sources who can footnote this for me i would be grateful but there was a disciple of gamaliel who was expelled from gamaliel's school his name should not be mentioned and he was expelled from gamaliel's school because he was so angry and violent and i wonder if that wasn't saint paul you know, that he, he, Gamaliel would never have, have stoned Christians. You know, Paul presided, in a sense, over the execution of Stephen. They laid, they laid their garments at his feet. He wasn't just incidental to this. I think he was the one who was, I, I don't know, it's, this is just my supposition. I wonder if he wasn't the one who was delegated to, to, to gather the lynch mob to kill Stephen. You know, I mean, Paul says, I was the worst of people. Well, that's Paul. That's our, that's, that's our man, Paul. All right. Now, I just want to uh, go briefly to the God. Well, what, should, what more should I say about Paul? Um, I went on a wonderful pilgrimage a few years ago with, with Archbishop Lestecki in the footsteps of St. Paul. It was a great privilege to go with, with the Archbishop. Um, and it, what really struck me about Paul was how much his ministry had to do with water. <laughs> You know, sitting on the dock of the bay, he would, that's how you travel in the ancient world. You wanted to go to one place, you went down to the, you went down to the harbor and asked if there was a ship going in the direction you were going. And if there was, and you could buy passage on it, you did, you got on it and it let you off 
at the at the closest port to where you were going. Then you waited for another ship. And all that time, Paul's looking out at the ocean, well, the, the Mediterranean Sea. He's looking out at the uh, uh, from the from the dock from the ship, uh, and and this this life of Paul. We we don't. I didn't think about this life of Paul on the water. You must be born again of of water and the spirit. You must be born again of wind and water. That the wind filling the sails and the boat goes scudding over the water. And Paul just has to wait until God gets him where he wants him. Um, that picture just sticks in my mind. Well, go into the whole world and proclaim the, the good news to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, that's not, you know, if you're not in my club, you're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. Whoever trusts and therefore is baptized, is immersed, will be saved. But whoever does not trust will be condemned. Isn't it interesting? When you translate a trust, it's a little different. That that it isn't being in the club; it's trusting God. And I know a lot of people in the club, myself included, <laughs> who bear the name of Christian, but often, very often, I have a really hard time trusting God. Jesus was once asked, uh, "What is the work of God?" This is in the Gospel of John. What is the work of God? And he says, "He says the work of God is to believe in the one whom God is." And oh, that's easy. I believe in Jesus. Oh, no, no, no. Translate it differently. The work of God is to trust the one whom God has sent. That takes work. <laughs> oh, Lord, I trust you. Now tell me what's going to happen. I want to know. Oh, Lord, I trust you. <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm, I'm not going to trust anyone else and not you. Very, you know, we, we say we trust the Lord. I don't. On a really good day with a lot of grace, and I've really got to, I trust the Lord. Whoever trusts... God and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not trust will be condemned. To not to live a life in fear truly is condemnation. This is Paul. Paul was an up-and-coming politician, probably from a wealthy family, a Roman citizen, uh, a man on the way to to uh, the Sanhedrin. And he threw it all away in one moment because he had met someone he could trust, Jesus, on the Damascus Road. And he sat on the dock of the bay, waiting for a ship to come, and then getting on the ship and trusting that God would take him where he was meant to be. He lived the life of a vagabond because he knew that God would take him where he wanted to go. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all do that, especially if we have responsibilities to other people. But this idea of whoever trusts... St. Paul had an intense faith, an intense trust. And because of that, he gave the world a culture, Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian. But more than that, he gave the world the gospel of Christ in a way that no other man has. That thought finished. We will go to a break. We'll come back with some letters. The phones are open at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Do call in to ask any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, the church, and the big book on the coffee table, the Bible. Then I watch and roll away again, yeah. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. I'll be no more weeping and wailing. 
Amen. Good song for the feast of the conversion of St. Paul. Let's go to letters. I got a letter here. Where did I put it? Where did I put it? Um, let me see. Oh, I got to turn the mouse right side up. If the mouse is wrong side up, it doesn't seem to go where I want it. Interesting. All right. This is uh, uh, interesting. This was from a while ago. It's from Stephen. Uh, and on a recent program, which is no longer recent, you were talking about Hebrew genealogy and how the names were so-and-so, son of such-and-such. That got me thinking now about how some biblical translations, you hear example, Simon Bar-Jonah, the bar, as you well know, meaning son of. The word bar mitzvah came to mind. I wonder if you could explain its meaning. Does it have anything to do with son of mitzvah? <laughs> it does sound like a Hollywood movie. Son of Frankenstein. No, the, the word bar is Aramaic and ben is Hebrew. Uh, Arabic is Ibn, which is more closely related to Hebrew, but uh, Aramaic and Hebrew are v very closely related languages. I, I, my Aramaic is almost non-existent, my Hebrew stinks, but that doesn't stop me from pontificating on both the languages. I would say it's almost like the distinction between Portuguese and Spanish. If you work at it, you can kind of understand what someone is saying in Portuguese if you speak Spanish and vice versa. But uh, um, <laughs> but don't think you got it 100%. So Ben, it would be uh, 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 Yehuda Ben Yehuda would be son, Judah, son of Judah in, in Hebrew. But uh, uh, the bar, like Simon Bar Jonah, means Simon, son of Jonah. Now, the word bar mitzvah means son of the, of the, of the commandment. A mitzvah is a commandment, uh, the mitzvot. There are 613 mitzvot. Mitzvot is the feminine plural. Mitzvah is one, mitzvot is two. Pay attention, there may be a short quiz. I have someone in the back row is going to sleep. Oh, where was I? So um, this this idea of, of, of bar mitzvah, you, when you have your bar mitzvah, then you are responsible to faithfully follow all 613 commandments of the law. When the bar mitzvah started, I am not sure. I think it is popular, and I have said it, to say Jesus' bar mitzvah was when he went to the temple when he was 12. They, I don't think they really had the bar mitzvah ceremony then. Uh, but they would have the 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 um, the first time you read from the, the bimah, the pulpit, in the synagogue. That would have been a big deal. And that's essentially what happens at a bar mitzvah. So um, <clears throat> you, you read from the Torah in in the synagogue. So that's it, bar mitzvah, son of commandment. So that's when you become a man, when you begin to fulfill the law of God. And I think that's good advice because it's it's true. All right. Now, the next one I have here is... Can you shed some light on these two puzzles? The Bible says David repented for killing Uriah uh, and adultery. But after repenting, David names Mary's Bathsheba. That's like a thief saying he's sorry when he spends the money. What kind of repentance is that? Well, you got to look at the story. He had married Bathsheba to protect her from the, the sentence of the law. She should have been stoned, and well, so should David have been stoned. But kings don't usually get stoned. Uh, but uh, so he married Bathsheba to protect her. Uh, and when the prophet Nathan brought, I think it was Nathan, brought this all to light. I'm getting my prophets <laughs> confused. Uh, David said, um, David took her in honorably. So 
God intervened in this. But David David actually did this to protect her and to protect his reputation too. Let us not forget that. So um, you know David David had David wanted uh, a temporary relationship. I won't use a more vulgar. Uh, phrase for it, but he ended up with a permanent one. Um, so the Lord wouldn't allow David to build the temple because David had too much blood on his hands. But but the Lord was with David in war, and now he's against him? Doesn't sound right. Again, God has this problem he thinks he's God. The, you know, God uh, in our lives has a plan A and a plan B. Uh, and sometimes C, D, and E. Um, I think that this is very hard for us to lay hold of, but God asks us to do things. Not he, God never asks us to do anything that's immoral, but he does make us differently enabled. In other words, uh, there are people who are very, very competent, as mechanics, but they just don't have what it takes to be a doctor. Now that's that's secular. You know, they may end up making more money than a doctor these days. Doctors pay a lot, lot out in insurance. But uh, you know, the different people have different abilities, and different people have different anointings. This is a very Pentecostal idea. Um, I remember this is this is an example in my own life from my my Pentecostal youth. I was always in the music ministry. I played the guitar, being an aging hippie, and uh, I played, I was an accomplished guitarist. I played G, C, D, seventh, and E minor. I'm, I'm joking. I wasn't very accomplished, but I played well enough to lead, lead the music ministry in the prayer groups. The day I was ordained, it, it stopped working. People, people would kind of grimace when I played uh, and led music ministry because that was no longer my 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 anointing. God chooses people for a specific work, and the work of 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 finishing the the conquest of the Holy Land, which had been flubbed by Joshua, really in the times of Joshua and the tribes coming into Israel, it hadn't been completely accomplished. The land had not been purified, and so God used this this violent man to accomplish his purpose, but that violence didn't qualify him for an anointing to build that temple. Now, Solomon was not more virtuous a man, I don't think, than his father David. He may have been less virtuous. However, he was anointed, that is, chosen by the Lord to, to, uh, to build the temple. I don't know, uh, Rob, if that answers the question, but this anointing of God. Uh, David, we saw in the passages earlier, he, he, he had Saul in his power, and Saul was trying to kill him, and he wouldn't hurt Saul. He had him right where he wanted to, in a cave. So he snuck up, cut off the edge of his robe, and said, God put me in your power, but I would not touch the Lord's anointed. That was one of David's real strong suits. He understood the anointing of God, that when God chooses someone to do a specific task, he may not choose him to do another task. And David, in his flesh, in his desire, wanted to build this temple. Um, now, very interestingly, David did something. Uh, he built something that has outlasted the temple. Do you ever think of that? He has done something that outlasted the temple. He established the base for the book of Psalms. 
Now, we, there are many psalms that are attributed to David. I don't know if they are all David, but David certainly started. I, I think there's very little doubt that David started uh, that poetic tradition of the psalms. And there are times you can't go back to the temple. Not one stone stands on another. The, the, the retaining wall for Herod's great uh, plaza, that's still standing. But of the temple itself, nothing that we know of remains um, at all. Um, there was a little pomegranate uh, that was the head of a staff that was found a while ago. I don't know if it still exists. And some scholars say it was. Some scholars say it wasn't. That may be uh, uh, the head of uh, a priestly staff uh, from the temple. If it is, it's the only thing that exists from the temple. The only thing. And a lot of scholars say, no, nah, it's, it's not for real. So nothing's left. But the book of Psalms, every Sunday in church, you and I recite the Psalms. And uh, we're supposed to sing the Psalms. So what David established has outlasted the temple. David was anointed for that. He wasn't anointed to build a building. So... You know, there are different gifts as we read in the scripture, but the same spirit who motivates them all. I hope that helps a little. Let me go to one more letter. I think I can do one more here. Let's see here. Oh, here we go. Okay. Now, this is an interesting question. A priest in the Phoenix Diocese was found to have used we instead of I during baptism. And all baptisms he took part in were considered invalid. Is there a set form priest must use in giving absolution? Yes, there is. He's supposed to say, I absolve you. That's that's the rock bottom. That's what we were taught in seminary. Rock bottom, I have to say, I absolve you. The I is very important because you're standing in, in a sense, for Christ. So it's not we, it's I. Now, if you went to a priest who didn't use the words, I absolve you, I, I have a feeling I forgive would work too, but I, I, I would, I never would say that. I'm not sure. Uh, forgive and absolve, they're slightly different, but they're slightly the same. The text we were taught, ego te absolvo, I absolve you. Uh, well, the priest didn't say that. He didn't say I absolve you. No, but in this case, you are, there's a saying, Ecclesia Suplet, the church supplies, the grace of a good confession is given to you because you willed to enter into a good confession. Baptism is a little different, especially when it's, when it's the baptism of an infant, because uh, the infant is not willing anything but to, but to lay there in the arms of mother or godmother or parents. So, the participation necessary for the sacrament is is assuming uh, um, in the sacrament of confession is assuming uh, the age of consent, the age of free will, um, which we've always marked at as seven, about seven years old. Maybe some are younger, <laughs> some are maybe later, but seven. So your participation in the sacrament of penance is different. And if you participate in the sacrament of penance, um, in good conscience, believing that you've been absolved, you're absolved. Uh, you receive the grace of absolution. And then the next time you go to confession, I don't know if this is the right word to use theologically, but it's grandfathered in. So you needn't be scrupulous. You went to confession to someone you believe to be a priest, who you believe to give you absolution. You 
you you uh, unburden yourself of all your mortal sins, if you had any, and you fulfilled your penance, you're absolved. You are, in effect, absolved. And uh, if that absolution was not a valid one, uh, uh, then uh, it's made up without your even knowing it at the next confession. Very interesting that until, I believe, the Council of Trent, under certain circumstances, it was considered valid for people to confess their sins to any baptized person because priests were not always available. Uh, you hear stories about the Battle of Pamplona, in which St. Ignatius was involved, that they all confessed to one another because there was no priest involved, if I'm remembering the story properly. That was limited. But the only way I, as a priest, can can absolve sins is if I am tied into my bishop. I, I receive faculties from my bishop, and if he were not to give me faculties, then I would not be able to validly hear confessions, except in a state of emergency. So it's a little complicated. It's a little different than baptism. But I, I'm saying all this just to assure you uh, uh, that your sins are forgiven, and Margaret, and if you were to be in a difficult situation, uh, you would be received, I believe, in heaven as in a state of grace. If I am wrong, again, I would ask a good theologian, a good moral theologian, a sacramental theologian to correct me. All right, speaking of that, we're going to go to a break. We'll come back with a word of the day, and uh, we'll open, well, the phones are open, but we'll take your phone calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. Today's programming is sponsored in part by St. Gregory Recovery Center. More information about their Catholic-centered recovery from substance abuse is available at relevantradio.com slash sdgregory. Oh, come, let us go back to God, go back to oh, God. Come on. Let us go back to God, let us go back. Sam Cooke, another great song that is Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian, believe it or not, it is. All right, let us go to the word of the day. There are two possible first readings today. One is taken from Acts, the 22nd chapter, that I explained that, where Paul was trying to quell a riot, and it didn't work. And he talks about how he has this vision, and he sees this bright light, and then my companion saw the light, but did not hear the voice of the one who spoke to me. But then let us go to the version in Acts 9, verse 1 and following, when we read, uh, um, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, for they heard the voice, but could see no one. What? Okay, the first reading from the 22nd chapter says they they saw the light, but they couldn't hear the voice. This one says they saw no one, but they could hear the voice. Which, which what? This is that totally contradicting. Not, not, not really. Because in the 22nd chapter, if you look at it in Greek, <laughs> uh, they, they beheld... Uh, um, they beheld the light. They beheld a light, uh, or they beheld the a light. But the 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 voice of of the one speaking to me, they did not hear. 
Then we go to Acts, the ninth chapter, the other version of it, and it says, uh, they, uh, they heard uh, the voice, but they saw no person. Now, the word phone is a funny word. It can mean a sound, a noise, a voice, a language, a dialect. I would say in one, he's saying that, yeah, the voice measures at phonics. Yeah, the word phonics comes from it. But it can also mean a sound. They heard, in one case, they heard a sound and saw a light. But they they didn't hear the voice of the one who was speaking. Paul heard something precise. So the passages, I, I've often been asked that. People say these are totally different. And... um they are a little different in Greek. The one is uh, the sound. They did not hear that. They, they heard the sound. The other is they did not hear the sound of the one speaking to me. If you translate it, both words as sound. So they didn't hear anything precise in one, one uh, version of it. And again, uh, I have a feeling that, that uh, saying this was written... Acts of the Apostles was, I, I suspect, written uh, under the gun, as it were. They had to get this done by a court date, and I think they probably, St. Paul and his secretaries, uh, just kind of um, put these things straight from a diary into the text. And we have never in the church tried to iron out the wrinkles. What we have received, we pass on to the next generation. All right, let's go to phone calls. John from California. Are you with us, John? What can I do for you? I am, Father. How are you doing? Pretty good. What can I do for you? Yes, Father. Uh, yesterday I was listening to the Mass on our on our parish, and, um, you know, the Gospel was talking about the, uh, all the, um, the divisions in the Church and things like that. Well, at least that's what the priest was talking about in his homily. But later on he mentioned to... Uh, yeah, he couldn't wait for women to become deacons. He didn't say in those words that uh, pretty much that's what he was uh, uh, interpreted. And he mentioned that at least in our parish, we are ahead of the, the curve because we let women do whatever they want. Um, I wanted to talk to the priest about it because I just uh, I feel a little bit of scandalous, you know, scandalized about it. I wanted to show mm -hmm. him the uh, ordinances of the Tallis, but then I started doing some research online, and I came across uh, uh, one passage in Romans 16.1, where mm -hmm. it talks about some diaconess. So mm -hmm. how do you interpret that passage in the Bible, and am I blowing it out of proportion, or should I just continue well, to pray for him? Actually, it is thought the, the Pope Francis did... Uh, um, um, what's the word, authorize a commission to look into this, and the conclusion, if I am, he did a number of times, and the commission said that, well, the word deacon uh, means table waiter. you got to understand what the word means in Greek, a table waiter. And uh, a waiter in the feminine is waitress. And the the commissions came up with the the observation that the early church did have women who fulfilled the roles of deacons, but they were not ordained liturgically, and they did not stand at the altar at the liturgy. You see, the liturgy is, is as the Greek, the liturgy is a Greek word, and it means the, the work of the people. 
And this was, uh, in the ancient Greek world, these were, were presentations about the gods and goddesses that were paid for by rich citizens, and they were part of religious rituals. And there was an acting out of a myth, of a story. And they used the same word for the, the ceremonies of the church. And the, there's a, there is, though I'm always saying church is not theater, there is a, a sort of iconic, in other words, a, a presentation of an image. The priest stands in for Christ. He's what's called the altar Christus, the other Christ. The congregation is the bride, that, that the church is the bride. And uh, um, uh, there you go. Well, what's the deacon? The deacon stands in for the angels. That's the symbolic role of the deacon, that heaven and earth witness the sacrifice of Calvary. So there's this iconic uh, presentation that the word ministry in Latin, minister, means tableware. It, it's the literal Latin translation of the, of the Greek word deacon. Diakonos. I am not ordained for ministry. I'm ordained to the sacrificerhood of Christ in the order of elder. I was ordained a deacon. For that, I was ordained a minister. But the presbyter is something more. The ordination is is about designating a person for his... Now, this is... Uh, I'm going to use this word and I'll try to explain it designating the person for his iconic function. You know, I didn't understand this. Why can't women be ordained until I did the retreat, a retreat for some Mexican cloistered nuns. These were wonderful women. They're the women who took care of us in seminary and all the other time they spent worshiping God. They're just wonderful women. And I realized that the sacrament that is unique to women in a certain sense is baptism that every soul at prayer is the bride of Christ, which is a stretch for me. <laughs> you know, I, I don't look much like a bride. But every soul at prayer is is uh, a localization. Maybe you could even say an incarnation of the bride of Christ. So the church is a woman, and she's served by men and angels. That's the symbolism that goes on. And when they want to trash that symbolism, they're not understanding the nature of ordination. So that's why for 2,000 years, women have not been liturgically ordained because they don't need to be. Women can do something that no man can ever do. They are the sanctuary of, of new life. And when you say that to a modern feminist, she just howls. But the sacredness of women so far exceeds what man can what men can aspire to that in a certain sense and i really mean this the idea of giving a liturgical ordination to a woman is a step down if you think of ordination as access to power then you've got ordination all wrong it isn't access to power it's it's uh, it has this iconic or image function um I know that this is a little bit complicated, but because we just sort of see, well, ministry, you got to be ordained to be a minister. No, you don't. And that the, there, there, there were women who had the title of deacon in the early church, and they were, you know, remember, deacon means waitress. Now, I want to be ordained as a waitress. Well, you don't have to be ordained to be a waitress. Uh, you don't have to be ordained to be a waiter. 
uh, unless you're going to function uh, iconically in the liturgy. Now, in the early church, they had, for the sake of decency, um, they would have deaconesses uh, prepare and women and uh, and children uh, for uh, baptism. That was one of their big functions. They participated in baptism when it would have been considered indecent for a man to do so. And they would be able to go places where men should not go. So um, that was their function. I, it is a very complicated answer. You might want to re-listen to it. But it's it's something I pondered a lot in, in my short life. And um, I, I think it would be very foolish to pretend, well, you know, the the church has spoken definitively the woman can't be a presbyter um i may want to be a mother but i can't be <laughs> so the question isn't uh, can women be ministers can women be fathers a woman can do the job of a father but she can't be a father and i i couldn't be a mother you know they're, they're different realities in the human psyche despite what the world's telling us now i hope that's some help i i should move on i know i've got other questions but this is not something i wanted to just sort of um give a shallow answer to who have we got now dear voice in my head Edmund from Albuquerque yeah. a beautiful town how are you doing Edmund what can I do for you hi father <clears throat> okay so I have this question for you because real quick uh, being a baptized Catholic I actually wound up uh, wandering around the Protestant denominations mm -hmm, for yeah. 23 years or so before I mm -hmm. By the grace of God, came back to the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. So soon after I came back to the Catholic faith, I ran into one of my old Protestant friends, and I was trying to explain to him the Eucharist. I mm -hmm. mentioned Eucharist, and he countered back and said, well, if it's not in the Bible, I don't want to hear about it. Well, at <laughs> the time, I didn't have a response. So then I was reading my, one of my old Protestant Bibles, which is the NIV translation, the New International Version, in verse 1016 of 1 Corinthians, it reads something like this. Isn't the bread of thanksgiving that we break the body of Christ? Isn't the chalice of thanksgiving that we bless the blood of Christ? So mm -hmm. my question is this. They translate it as Thanksgiving, and my understanding is Eucharist comes from the Greek word Eucharistia or something like that. Can you, you translate it. that uh, into Greek? Yes. Yes, the cup of the blessing which we bless, is it not a sharing of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a sharing of the body of the Messiah? Uh, um, I, th I think the line before is the one that mentions Eucharist, but uh, or after yes, you see the word Eucharist is is very important. Um, the 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 Eucharist, uh, of course, you'd have to look at it um, um, from from a Jewish perspective, which might not help your friend, but. The rabbis taught that everything would pass away but the Thanksgiving sacrifice. The Messiah would offer the sacrifice of Thanksgiving. And Eucharist means Thanksgiving. And so St. Paul does tell us to offer the Eucharist. Uh, every time he says uh, uh, to, 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 to offer your prayers uh, with Thanksgiving, 
he, he's using the word Eucharist because Eucharist means Thanksgiving in Greek. And it was a reference to the sacrifice of the, of the Messiah, the Messianic banquet, uh, sacrificial banquet. Um, so I don't know that that would convince your friend, but very clearly, 1 Corinthians, well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, let's see if I can find that easily. 1 Corinthians, um, okay, 15. If you look 1 Corinthians 15, come on, computer, 1 core, 15, and enter. Um, this is about the Eucharist. Um, that that Saint Paul says that that you're to 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 offer this sacrifice of thanksgiving. Um, Christ died for our sins. He appeared to Cephas. Oh no, I'm wrong. Oh gosh, can you call back in and I'll work on this because I got to find the passage. He says in First Corinthians that that the Lord told us to do this, and it really is His body and blood. But I think your use of that passage, First Corinthians tenth uh, chapter, is absolutely on spot. And uh, you know that that's what they believed in the very first generation of, of Christians. And so here we are 2,000 years saying, nah, we're, we're right there wrong. No, the first generation of Christians, we've preserved that memory. And so uh, that will not uh, do much for him. Have him explain the genealogies of Jesus to you. And, and, and because they're two different families. <laughs> and unless you know Christian tradition and the history of the church, you wouldn't know how they're reconciled. The scripture is so full of apparent contradictions that you can only unravel them by reference to what the church has taught for 2,000 years. So uh, his position of sola scriptura, Bible alone, is a very shaky position. So I got to go. But if you if you want, do call in again tomorrow. And um, and I, I hope I'll have a uh, more clear references for you for the, with the use of the word Eucharist in the writings of St. Paul. He talks about it constantly. Speaking of St. Paul, well, we have Drew coming up and he's not St. Paul, but he's pretty good. Oh, 30. I still have 30 seconds. Is there a short joke I can tell? He had a hat, you know? No, that's the punchline. Oh, there's music in my head. It's good. There's something in my head.